Hey, this is Jeremy Tobax and Van Brad, and you're listening to the State of Love and Trust podcast. I'm here to ask you to rate, review, and subscribe on your preferred podcast platform of choice. Feed that algorithm. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The State of Love and Trust. It's a Pearl Jam podcast, and I'm one of your two hosts, Jason Carapesi, and alongside me, as always, is... Paul Gilleary. Paul, we're here again. We're just closing in on the end of the year, just getting closer and closer to Thanksgiving. I think it might be my favorite holiday. Is it yours? Uh, no, but it makes oh, me... No, why don't I even ask you may, that? You're a Christmas I, I, guy. I am a Christmas You probably guy. have Santa emblazoned across Christmas. your house right now. It's a butte, Clark. It's uh, a butte. Listen... The best part about Thanksgiving, though, are all the reasons to be grateful. And I, I, I remain incredibly, incredibly grateful for the opportunity to talk to Kevin Martin from Candlebox last week. That's right. And uh, something tells me that I'm going to be incredibly grateful yet again this week, Jason. Paul, it's it's become a murderer's row here at the end of 2023. Um, to, I don't know who made that term up. I think it was, was it the 1927 Yankees. That's the Yankees. Yeah, the Yankees. The Yankees murder. God, row. I hate the Yankees so much. Anyways, <laughs> I hate the Yankees. Um. <laughs> If you're new here, hello, welcome. If you are uh, an old-time listener, welcome back. Uh, if you are a patron, we love you very much. Thank you for keeping this ring light on in front of me. And um, yeah, if, if you would if you would be so kind as to rate, review, and subscribe to the show, that would help more people find this bad boy. And that uh, algorithm listen to, uh, gets hungry this time of year, Jason. It does. It is. It's famished. That's all. That's what we got this week, Paul. That's a- <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> well, there he is. You can hear him chuckling in the background. It's, today's uh, guest is uh, the original bassist for the band Brad out of Seattle. And I guess partly by way of Los Angeles, it's Jeremy Tobeck. How's it going, man? It's going great. Sorry for chuckling over your witticisms, but there no, it is. It, it's too That's too strong. <laughs> Give us too much credit. I like being part of Murderer's Row. It's like the most murderous thing I've ever been part of. <laughs> there you go. I'm, I'm glad we could help you out with that. You can put that yeah. on your epitaph. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> man. Not yet. Please. Well, no, you know, in the future. Just like, okay. you know, save it to a, to, a, to a note on your computer. Um, yeah. You guys out there, you're listening to this show. You're probably big Pearl Jam fans. You probably know what Brad is. For those of you who might be, might be a little bit new, just checking in. Uh, Brad was a band is a, well, I guess it was a band technically at this point, um, that started in 1992 in Seattle, um, through, uh, a few dudes you may know, Stone Gossard of Pearl Jam, uh, Regan Hagar of, uh, Malfunction and Satchel and, uh, Sean Smith of Satchel. And then a lovely young gent from Los Angeles named Jeremy Toback. And we're going to get into the story of, of, uh, how that band kind of kicked things off and, and evolved and how Jeremy evolved um, with and without it. So let's um, then get back to the early 80s or the mid, I guess the mid, mid to late 80s we'll actually. Go to 1988 specifically, Jason. 1988. The year the Dodgers won the World Series. Is the year true? of Rain Man with Tom Cruise. Are you looking at 1988 facts as I was talking? I, I, we were alive in 1988. What are you talking yeah, about? I remember I mean, I these like, years. Okay. It was soul crushing for me as a Giants fan to watch the Dodgers win the World Series that year. Kirk Gibson. Was, was that a big Tony Katan year? 
Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm dancing on hoodies. Oh, anyways, right. anyways, <laughs> what was happening at San Diego in uh, in New Jersey in Princeton was you were graduating, Jeremy. Can I say that I went to see World Party and Tanya Katane was there with the lead singer from White Snake? Really? That's fantastic. Here isn't that I awesome? Again, oh my, that is that outstanding? I'm sorry to interrupt your flow, but it's too good because you said Tanya Katane. It's great. And, and my friend. I didn't recognize them because I was into REM. My friend was like, dude, that's the guy from Whitesnake. I was like, what's Whitesnake? And and he asked him, he's like, so you're a fan? And he's like, she is. <laughs> I love I love in the 80s not like actually not knowing who Whitesnake or Tony Katana yeah. is. Like I was like, what? Hey Jeremy, you, you don't have to apologize for interrupting our flow. I assure you, nobody listening <laughs> is 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 listening for our flow. Okay, fair and whatever our flow is isn't a flow no. um our wives will confirm that anyway <laughs> so back to princeton <laughs> yes princeton princeton so you you graduated in 88 and you were an english major correct i was an english major yes okay. so you played in a band out there in new jersey called noise pedals which by the way is a fantastic name especially if you were like a like a death metal band which i i assume you were not but <laughs> we were you, not we were not we were but not. how cool would that have been great name anyways yeah thank you i like the name then you move out here to yeah. pursue music yes. now i need to know how does an english major decide you know what music's the thing for me and you come out here uh because uh th- those were the sort of halcyon days is that the right phrase of college rock you know and mm-hmm. rem and you know bands like miracle legion and let's active and all that stuff and i was like i was bit hard by that and i and i just fell in love with playing music with noise pedals like and it was fun because like you didn't have to live off of it and everybody else wanted to go have careers and i was like that weren't music and i was just kind of like i'm gonna do this music thing like i've I want to be in R.E.M. and I'll go to L.A., which is the headquarters of of hair metal and, you know, not find anybody who wants to do that. (laughs) (laughs) That Back down uh, the White Snake singer and say, hey, hey, buddy. Yeah, exactly. Go to see World Party and hang out with the guy from White Snake. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure the guys of Motley Crue just looked at you outside of the Viper room, were thinking to themselves, "That guy's going places." <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Like I have said this before, but it's like I'd look up ads in the Recycler, which was like the way you got in bands, and you know, yeah. it was like a newspaper thing, and they'd be like, uh, "Speaks raven-haired shredder must have looks," and I'd be like, "Hmm." <laughs> Technically, I am raven-haired check there you go there you go you know like shred i can slap the bass a little you know? anyway, well yeah. you were slapping the bass all over small venues in la around this time late 80s early 90s and uh legend has it jeremy that uh, a mutual friend uh of stone gossards and you uh i guess who, who was it hooked you guys up at uh was it regan hagar's family-owned place in 92 how t- tell us a little bit about that yeah it's just um a guy I grew up with in LA, this guy, Alex Rosenass, who owned, went on to own Rock Candy, which. Oh, famous club. Famous yep. club. So he was, had moved up to Seattle, was friends with this guy, became friends with this guy. They were both at University of Washington, this guy Stone Gossard, when he was in Green River. And um, 
Alex ended up, I think, road managing Mother Love Bone for a tour. And Stone and I would hear about each other for like over the over those years. And I just ended up visiting my friend in Seattle and I met Sean and Regan at like a barbecue and th- they were cool guys. And I remember listening to a demo for Bliss in Alex's car of this song called drift which i loved um and yeah that was kind of like my first thing but um so you go up there and you meet those guys when when did the stone meeting happen was that a different place it was like i feel like it was all within the same year i was teaching speed reading which is a weird thing like it was just trying to make money like it was like not a career aspiration and uh the second time i went up to seattle was right when Pearl Jam had got off the road, but before um, before the Lollapalooza of the Grunge Lollapalooza, mm-hmm. and uh, and I just remember being actually at Regan's coffee shop, and I didn't do my research, but I think it's the one that he owned with his mom, and sitting there, and I was like, I think that's Stone, and he was holding court, and it was a trip because. Um, just the vibes in Seattle at the time were just so sort of a real scene and a real gold rush. And it was so small compared to LA where it's like, you could live in it. I'd go to the coffee shop at Silver Lake and it's like, whatever, it's a coffee shop. You go there and it's like, you're at the center of the grunge scene, you know? Right. Um, it's still that word is hilarious. But anyway, um, and just eventually he's like, who's this guy looking over at me? And I'm like, I'm Jeremy. And he's like, oh, dude, Jeremy, hey. I'm like, you're Stone. He's like, yeah. And from there, we just kind of hit it off and had a good time hanging out a couple times on that trip. And um, didn't think much of it. And I went back to LA and I was teaching punks speed reading and I got a call. Uh, we had like, you know, like dial-up phone. You know what I mean? Like it's like what's a dial-up hey. phone? <laughs> it's like I lived above this like motorcycle shop at Silver Lake with this friend of mine who's a poet. Like we were this, living. That, that t- sounds like a movie. Oh, dude, it was a movie. It was like <laughs> a tenement palace. We paid nothing, and we were just making our art and shit. And I, he's like, he comes and he's like, uh, Jeremy, I think Stone, you know, from Pearl Gems on the phone. <laughs> and you're like. Oh yeah, that guy. Were you thrown by by that at all? I mean, because you knew you knew of him for so long that it's almost like you you knew him already, but you didn't know him. So when when you got to meet him uh, at the coffee shop with Regan, in, uh, you know that Lollapalooza tour was like smack dab in the middle of like their rocket ship ascendancy to you know, yeah, totally craziness. Right. Was was that apparent to you, or were you are you the kind of guy that's just like oh that's 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 Stone. That's Alex's friend. Or was it really so, obvious? It was a weird blend where it's like, I wasn't obviously in outer space. Like, like I knew Pearl Jam had was blowing up. I knew that. And actually, this is my same roommate. We were in the car once and we heard one of the, probably Alive or even Flow, one of those first two singles, right? When it was hitting, right? And I was like, dude, that's my friend's friend. <laughs> you know? But it was more like that and it wasn't the other piece of it was it was not I was even out of my sort of college rock phase and into just only listening to jazz. And like, so I was consciously out of 
the mainstream music world in terms of my taste. So on the one hand, I knew he was in a huge band and getting like to be the biggest band in the world shortly. Right. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, I was kind of legitimately not too cool for school at all, but just like legitimately like not as maybe intimidated by it or whatever, as I could have been, had I been in the, you know, like, I don't know, a year earlier or whatever. So, so, um, yeah, it was more like that. And, but when I met him in Seattle, I was definitely conscious of the energy around it. I was like, oh, like people were clearly like this. Our friend is now a huge rock star and we're, you know, pulling lattes. You know, it was that mix of things. But I was kind of, happening. there was a total shift there. Um, but I was kind of perfectly situated because they couldn't find somebody in Seattle, like uh, those guys were all friends. Stone and Regan go way back. And Sean was like one of Andy's better friends, I gather. And so the, they were all tight, but they couldn't find just a bass player who wasn't, who was just around that would jam with them. That wasn't going to be to your point, just tripped out mm. by Interesting. Oh, I'm going to play with stone. Like the, who could just be chill about it. Right. And they found like, you know, probably one of the few people who could play <laughs> who would be chill about it. Well, <laughs> well, let's, let, let's unpack that, Jeremy. Like Stone asks <laughs> if you want to play. I mean, yeah. he's, he's in, you know, I think what would, we would all agree is arguably the biggest band in the world at the time. Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, some of the emotions, you know, the, some of the things you were thinking about going through uh, as someone who came up to LA to make music. And now you, you've got this invitation to do something on a platform that, probably rivals what you had hoped for when you came to LA looking to do that. Yeah. So, yeah. So it was like, yeah. So I wasn't so oblivious that I didn't grok it right away. I was like, Oh, this would be a cool thing to do. Like I also liked stone and we talked about drummers and, you know, laying back on the beat and just being nerds about shit. And, I, and so it was like, it was like we had a vibe and I knew Sean and Regan were talented, like, and liked their stuff. So it was kind of, all of that was going through my head and the fact that I hadn't actually played bass in a year, which I told stone cause I was only writing weird songs on piano and he was completely just so full of confidence that he was like, Oh, time away from your instrument could be good for you. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll go fuck get my chops together. I mean, like, <laughs> not, not, not that I'm on the same musical uh, ability level as you by any means, but I know that if I take off like, a year from playing guitar, I am a disaster when I go pick it back up again. So I, I don't know. Were you nervous when he asked you to, and you were like, I haven't played. And you're like, okay. I mean, in the sense that I was like, I, I was, yeah, it was a weird mix again, where I was like, okay, well, I'm going to really have to shed because I should, I want to have my, I knew, I knew that I was a good bass player. <laughs> I'm going to have to be a good bass player. So I knew, I would, but I also was kind of probably young enough that I was just like, I could do it. <laughs> Love the bravado. You know what I, I mean? Do. Like, I don't think I doubted that I could do it, but, it, but like, yeah, yeah, it was a mix. <laughs> so you, you accept Stone's invitation and you, obviously you relearn that bass real quick and yeah. you go up to Seattle and this is October of 92, which yeah. for Again, Pearl Jam fans listening, 
that is like just a few weeks after they play that massive drop in the park show up there um, in Magic yeah. Park. And obviously, the, the like you had experienced a few months earlier, the, the vibe there is is palpable, right? Not not just yeah. them, but like the, the scene itself is pretty fucking wild. I want to know, you know, when you walk into the rehearsal space for the first time and you start jamming with Stone and Regan and Sean, what, what are those vibes like? And was, was the chemistry immediate or did it take a couple of sessions to kind of like, okay, here we are. Yeah. This is, so this is the weird part. And I think I am like a, I won't take you too far down the spiritual, spiritual route, but I'm a, like, I definitely am a deep diver in that world. And I, and I believe that certain things are just meant to be and they're inexplicable. And because the chemistry was, as I recall, it was like literally from downbeat. Like, I think the first thing we played was Buttercup, which they had jammed on before. And it was just like, and Sean's thing is so beautiful. And it just like, we, I'd never played with any of them. They didn't know that I could play. And it was like, right away and everything we seemed to kind of try just felt incredibly natural. Regan and I played together like incredibly naturally, like nothing, Hmm. there was nothing that felt, and there was none of, you would think as you described the situation, because I'd also in between being asked and the first coming up to Seattle in October, I'd gone to see, you know, Stone invited me to go see Lollapalooza at Irvine Meadows or whatever, and gave me, you know, like the, the whole like, pass thing or whatever and so it's like i'm completely aware of what's going on you know <laughs> watch them play you know kill it and it, what's amazing to me is that none of that seemed to infect what we were doing in it like everybody they were admittedly pretty high but i wasn't <laughs> <laughs> you were present so, but it, but so it's kind of when you describe it I'm like, wow, it's really strange that we were just able to be chill about it and just play tap into the music, but we were. So. Well, that, that's that's a great segue because it took you guys about a little more than two weeks to record this album, right? That's that's not that's not a very long period of time. Yeah, so, can I can I correct you like in a in a nerdy way, like to please. write to write record and do the rough mixes <laughs> in what seventeen days or so. Yeah, I mean, it's just just under three weeks. Like, yeah, my yeah, whatever it says on Wikipedia or whatever is right. <laughs> wow, that's nuts. Well, we'll talk a little bit, Jeremy, about how those various musical backgrounds for you guys. Like, you were into into jazz at that point in time. Like, how how did all these influences kind of coalesce for you guys to and combine for you guys to 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 produce this so efficiently and so so effectively in this expedited time frame? Like that is a great question. And it's like, I can't even give you an intellectual answer because I just feel like we just all vibed in spite of, in spite of these disparate influences. Like the fact that I did have these sort of funk influences, like I was into Prince. So Sean and I Mm. had that in common. And like the fact that he's like, where did you learn how to slap? I was like, Oh, listening to Jeffrey Osborne, baby stay with me tonight. And it's like, not many people in Seattle, we were probably the two guys and white guys in Seattle who would bond over that, you know? Um, So there were some interesting intersections and it's not like 
I was hadn't been in the stadium rock like Stone was growing up. It's just I'd moved on to other things. So somehow all these things, and Regan obviously was a pocket drummer. So it's like we, you know, I mean, I'm trying to make sense of it now as I talk about it, but it's not like we even had a conversation. You know, people just brought things in and then we just fell in. You know, Stone brings Nadine in and we just fall into it. And I, I you know what's interesting about right. this is you guys got along so well. Like you said, the word you used was vibed, right? Like we talked to Kevin Martin last week and he mentioned how he didn't even know the guys in Candlebox very well at all. And they just kind of came together mm. and had, you know, and had to feel all this out as they went. Right. You guys kind of had a connection. Like you, you, you got along well. It, it sounds to me like there, there was a going friendship essentially that you guys were able to build off of. It's an interesting dynamic where you, you get these guys together and, even though you hadn't really practiced and you're coming right. from these different angles, you, you guys, yeah. you're looking for common ground because you appreciate the presence of being around each other. Totally. I mean, I think that's, that's a piece of it. And just, I think it's the magic also of just, you know, being at a very, I think we're all, except for stone, who was obviously more accomplished in career, but all at places as musicians where we had, you know, a certain level and we could recognize it in each other. And when you do that and you appreciate each other, like that's like a magical thing. Like there's those, those kinds of connections happen romantically, they happen sexually and they happen musically. If you're lucky, you have those kinds of connections and they're crazy. Like, um, and I, there was definitely fondness, but it's not like we even, like I didn't know those guys at all. It was just kind of, I mean, there were moments that were funny where it's like, even in the first record where the vibes were great, where it's like, I remember 20th century was, I'm 90% sure that I came in with just that, that slapping thing. And then stone has the riff. And I remember distinctly Sean just going, 20th century. And I was like, I thought it was the dopest thing ever, but at first, and I don't remember what I said, but Sean was like, are you making fun of me? And I'm like, no, I'm not making fun of you. I probably sang it back to him or something. And I was like, I'm not making fun of you. I think that's like the dopest shit ever. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's just an example of like, there were pieces where it's like, we didn't know, you know, but anyway. So it, it kind of sounds like, you know, um, even though you were, you know, quote unquote, the last guy in. That, it, that there wasn't like, you didn't, maybe you can correct me, but it doesn't sound like you felt like you needed to like hang back and kind of like slowly lean into Like you kind of, did you feel comfortable to just kind of jump in? Did they encourage that? It was pretty quick. I mean, that's the weird thing is like, like I've been asked before, like, did you come in with stuff? Like I had some things just in case, but I didn't expect right that, that oh, you're going to go in and write stuff. I just was like, he's like, we're going to jam and maybe make a record. I was like, okay, well, I've got a do 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 like that baseline or whatever. Like there's some things that I worked out, but I didn't expect it. It's just that everything clicked so quickly and people were just like throwing things out that it felt really natural to do it because I wouldn't have presumed I would have been like, I was definitely going in with like, well, these guys know each other. I'm going to defer and see what's up. Right. That's a, that's a good But it was defer, very yeah. open. It was like from down, like almost 
I could, I wish I knew which, what came after buttercup. I don't, but like, well, but it happened super quick. You mentioned 20th century. I mean, let's talk a little bit about some of these, these songs off shame. Uh, yeah. You know, a lot of those 11 songs were based off jams in the Avast recording company studio. So the yeah. groove from 28th century, it's one of Jason's yeah. favorite rhythm sounds in all the music. He's talked about this before. Mm-hmm. And the, the way your bass and Regan's drums just kind of cut. Can you kind of like walk us through a couple of your favorite jams that turned into songs for this record? So that's definitely one of them because it's just, I just feel like it's so original. Um, and it's like, it's nothing I would have predicted. You know, it's like, oh, I mean, it's just me hitting the E string and like muted G string. That's basically the big fun. You know? Um, and what Stone came up with was so cool. And then like Sean throwing these changes over it and his melody stuff. And then when it came to recording it, actually that Regan recording drum stuff and then taking it over to um, uh, Bad Animals, I think they had to go to. Like they didn't have, mm-hmm. at Avast, they didn't have a computer to make a loop. So they had to go because oh, they were like, oh, let's, let's do that looping thing that oh. they're doing. So yeah, the drums are looped. I'm pretty sure, I know my bass is not looped. I played to the loop and I'm pretty sure, I'm, I'm uh, like close to 100% sure that Stone played all that too. Um, so just that and that we were sort of, that those, that came from those guys and it, and it has this, sort of Euro element to it. That's not really present in the Seattle in thing. Like it's kind of proggy. <laughs> it's very different. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's a lot to say about that, but that is definitely a favorite. Uh, you know, I really liked probably because I brought the baseline in, not because I brought it in, but because of what it became and what Sean did with it, like Ray's love. Mm. Um, just how it opened into that like those verses those swinging verses opened into that sort of big that has like to me shades of alice and chains a little bit mm-hmm. like my my favorite aspect of alice and chains like the sort of uh wood aspect um and so just like the way things un- that were unexpected to me happened was what made it really exciting um but there's things that are straightforward that i love too like it's like screen and i remember sean that's a great song. coming up with that chorus and it just sending chills down my back you know because i think he wrote the chorus right there in the room wow. like he he probably came in i'm sure he came in with those changes that's got to be some sean smith shit it wasn't me i don't think it was <laughs> It wasn't weekend. <laughs> so, but I remember him doing the never just how dark this screen can be and just being like, oh man, that's just beautiful, you know? Yeah. So, the, the opening and verse of that song is just gorgeous, too. I mean, yeah, just really nailed it with that. I mean, and the soundscapes, too. I mean, talk a little bit about the gear, man. Like, do you remember what basses, amps, pedals you were using back then? 
So this, I'm, you know, I'll, I'm going to disappoint you, or maybe I won't because it's, it's just like such a non-gear camp. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> we have we have gear I, nerds on this show, man. I literally played through whatever Jeff Amend had. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Good start. I don't even know what it was. Like, I don't. I'm sure it was like an Ampeg, or or no. What's the big one? The big Pixies. <laughs> I'm so not an amp person. Uh, it's the, what is it? it's like the classic bass amp. I had my bass, which I still have today, which was the wrong Fender P bass. It was like a they made these elite basses mm-hmm. in the early '80s that my bass teacher was like, "You're getting pretty good. You should get a better bass." They they're making these elite basses, and they're they're actually pretty good now. People actually respect those basses, but they didn't because they had active pickups, which is like a no oh, no can't have those. Yeah. And and it had two it had two, you know, two of the humbucking pickups. And I would just roll all the top end off because I was like, what do you need that for? Um <laughs> so yeah, I mean that's I, I didn't have I don't think I played through any pedals. They might have like in mixing. I in mixing, I think Brendan threw some there stuff was like on some phasery stuff on there, I think. Yeah, point. like I feel like yeah. the uh in Ray's Love, like there's there's some distortion on the bass. I don't think that was me. <laughs> so we'll fix I it loved post. it though. I loved it. Yeah. Like at the end of it on the outro where it's like him, Regan and I are grooving and it's just kind of breaking up. I was like, Oh, that's dope. Nice job, Brendan. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so you are the only band member not named Sean Smith to write lyrics for a Brad song outside of one stone contribution on welcome to discovery park. Sheepish. Um, yeah, Sean, uh, for many people, uh, was the reason I think Brad successfully separated himself from what the media wanted to do with all the Seattle bands, which is lump them together. You, you right. mentioned Grunge a number of times, and we, we, Paul and I are constantly like, that's silly. All his bands sounded completely different. No. Right. We talked to Kevin Martin about this last week. They yeah. sounded like Candlebox sounded nothing, nothing like Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam sounded nothing like Soundgarden. Soundgarden sounded nothing yeah. like Alice in Chains. We can go on. Yeah. So... Sure. First off, what do you remember about Sean personally and as a musician and a lyricist? So personally, like initially, like super soft spoken, shy, reserved, almost painfully so, I think. Mm. Um and a sweet man. Although we later like we had a really bad phase where we did not get along really? at all. By the end, we got along again. So, like, you know, um, but that's what I remember about Sean when I met him. Um, like, he wasn't like a guy that you would be like, oh, he's a guy frontman. Not Andy Wood, is what you're saying. Like, well, Andy Dime- was, was a sweetheart too, I think. Right. But he was like, he was a presence. Like, he, you knew he was yeah, a good rock eccentric. Star. Yeah. Sean Smith was not like, I'm going to be, although, like, I think he did great, like in 20th century. Like he totally felt cool to me, but he wasn't like that big rock star personality. Um, and then you said musically, like musically right away, like just clearly impressed because he just, I was already a songwriter myself and like very at the beginning phases of being like a vocalist, super, super beginning. So, his talent was just so obvious. Um, and 
also like he had just had such a cool aesthetic. Like I had very specific taste even then. And like, I wasn't, to be honest, like I'm not really into the other Seattle bands. Soundgarden a little-ish, like I was kind of early SST Soundgarden, but it's like, it wasn't my thing. So like the big rock voice is not the kind of thing that I listen. I mean, Robert Plant. Okay. But like, you know, yeah, like there are exceptions, you know, but like it just, and it wasn't where I was at at the time. Right. So, so, but Sean wasn't like that at all. And so I was just kind of blown away by him from downbeat and already was before we jammed. Like, like I said, I liked, I, I would liked bliss. Like I was like, not every song, but, but I was into, so there was that piece and the lyrics were like, more like, I just felt like he had, like when he hit, there were certain things that he hit, like we're very different lyricists, but like, he would hit things like a melody and a, and a phrase that would just pull your heart in a certain way, like screen. Like you never know how dark, you never know just how dark the screen can be. Like, I don't know what he's really saying, which is totally fine with me, with me Mm -hmm. as a lyricist, but I feel it. And it's really evocative of like some heartbreak, you know? Right. And buttercup, you know, before we're thrown back into the world or whatever, like, it's still something that always, it's like whenever I write something to Sean online or whatever, you know, posthumously, I'm always like, I pull that because just like, I feel like it's like this, it's such a longing behind those words. So, and he's got a lot of that. He would just come up with cool shit. A lot of it was spontaneous, you know, he's very, when it was flowing and working, like that was his brilliant thing. It was like, it would just come out and it would be great. Well, that's a good segue to my next question here. Is 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 down a song you would you would qualify as spontaneous? Like what did it mean to have a song that you wrote accepted by the guys like that? I mean, how did that I mean, how did that one come together? So I was totally thrilled that it was even like I was I had that piano piece coming up there and then once it became clear that like I could bring shit in. <laughs> I would go home and to Alex's house, the rock candy owner where I was sleeping and um, work on his piano and like hammer out words. But I was writing, I wrote these very, at the time I was trying to write songs that didn't even repeat. So that was like a pop song for me because I would say down over and over. Um, And the lyrics for the verses are just like intentionally, like I'm try- I was trying to get to a deep place by blending words that didn't necessarily go together or didn't seem to, even though like I was saying, I was trying to say something. So it was just a very, I was in this very obscure mode of lyric writing, which I still tap into in very small ways, but more to just like make people interested in something normal than to just completely leave them baffled. Um, so it was just, I, I mean, it was not at all what Sean was doing. And I was happy that they wanted to do it at all. <laughs> you know, you know. So you mentioned Alice in Chains earlier, and I was listening to that song today. That song feels very Alice in Chainsy. 
when you think about like 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 some of their softer, more like oh, dark cool. songs, yeah, jar of fly stuff, you know, yeah, the jar of like sap, all that stuff is very moody and dark and kind of um, spacious is the wrong word, but right. Well, I, I'm curious with a song like that because it. I mean, Jason's right just in terms of kind of like the moodiness of it, but and, and it's a fantastic song. But what I think is interesting is that you know. You guys, when I look back at that shame, I think about some of the figures that were associated with that album that ultimately would become, I mean, and, and were, I think, some pretty big names. I mean, Brett Eliason engineered it. Eventually, uh, Brendan O'Brien would mix it. What can you tell us a little bit about, about Brett? I mean, did he guide you guys at all or was was it totally hands off? I mean, like when you, when you think back to Brendan and Brett's uh, um, involvement with a record like that. What stands right. out? Right. So Brett was super nice. Like I just remember being a nice guy and really helping stuff move along. But it didn't feel very like it was definitely like a, we were producing it, um, and mostly like Stone was quarterbacking with Sean, probably right. Mm. Um, but it was all moving so fast. There wasn't like a lot of thinking. So that's the recording piece. Um, mostly. Um, and then like Brendan's involvement was just sort of, that was something that I wasn't even involved in. Like I was kind of like, Hey, I think I've got a call. We're going to have, um, Brendan take a couple shots at things. I was like, cool. And then I got a tape and it was uh 20th century and buttercup. And I believe. Yeah. The, no, it didn't even, it wasn't even the finished version of 20th century because Sean added those little bit farthers later. Like as the record got mixed by Brendan, I think is that like other stuff happened. Like, they put Bashiri Johnson on there. There were, I didn't go to New York with them for those, for, for what happened, for that happened. But yeah. I just remember when I did hear 20th century and buttercup, I was just like, this sounds great. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't kind of like, Hey, maybe not the right mixer. It was clear. I mean, I don't know what Brett, Brett could have done given more time. He had two days to mix the entire thing. It wasn't like, it was, it was a rough mix, you know, um, but Brendan clearly took it. And he was also like a guy who was right at that point, you know, yeah. where he had just, I don't know if he just done the black crows record. Is that right? <sighs> I it's don't around the time. Cause he, yeah, I know he, he had already done something. He before did he um, mixed blood, mixture, sex magic. Did he mix it? He if he mixed it, that would be a pretty big yeah. record. <laughs> I mean, he 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 produced and mixed verses, which was four months later. Later, that's later. But I I, right. I know Brendan. I know Brendan had done something before he mixed our record for sure. I feel like he was at Chili Peppers. Um, in any case, he just he killed it, and and everything I heard at that point, like I am an opinionated person, and I would definitely, as that brand, as Brad would go on, I would get outvoted a about a lot of shit. Um, but that wasn't even something that I even had anything to say about, except I love it. 
you guys were getting some decent press um in 93 when it came out obviously as you mentioned um screen was doing really well as a single um getting some airplay down here at k-rock um and you alluded to it just now and even earlier that there were you know some political reasons yeah you guys didn't kind of get out there and support shame are, are you at liberty <laughs> to say why there were no scoring <laughs> dates for that i mean i've oh. said it i've said it elsewhere and i think all the bad i mean certainly like i don't feel any bad blood you know it's like so long ago um yeah i mean basically it went from the label being incredibly excited i mean screen was getting play here it wasn't even that was on a demo on a pre-release it wasn't even the single mm. and k-rock was playing it that's how like that's how like much the Seattle hype was and right. how, when like this guy, Zeke Peastrup was an intern at K rock who got a hold of a pre-release and took that and gave it to like Richard blade and they put screen on the air. That's just how crazy that moment was in music. You can't even imagine that, you know, five years later, cause everything became so regimented, you know, but that's, it was wild and open. So anyway, but it went from, we're in Rolling Stone, that's going on. Regan's calling me and saying, dude, the label is freaking out. I love it. You know, famous last word, shop for property. Um, <laughs> well, uh, uh. Never say that. <laughs> You're like, I'm living up a motorcycle shop. I'm fine. No, I mean, I was literally, <laughs> li literally on the dial, on the friggin' rotary phone. Like, what are you talking about, dude? Like, I'm buying dollar burritos, shop for property. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, and then, you know, what, what happened is that, like, people in Pearl Jam, like Stone, I don't think in them had been very communicative and, and about this project. And there hadn't been any side projects yet from Pearl Jam. Mm. So that cherry hadn't been popped and they had just come off the road and were the biggest fan in the world. And, you know, there's things that I look back on now and I, I'm, I get it. It just, but basically there was some feeling within Pearl Jam that this was like, we, we don't want to be overexposed. This is just like too much. Mm. And however strong or unstrong those feelings were, I don't know. But it was enough that Pearl Jam management network were like, we're not going to jeopardize Pearl Jam to sell a few million Brad records. Hmm. So that's, that's um, interesting. I mean, there's, like I said before, uh, you know, Versus was recorded in the spring in Marin County. Mm. And the rest of 93 was very heavy with, with touring from them. So from a timeline point of view, because what uh, this album came out in April, right? April of '93, right? No, it can't. So we record right. So we recorded it in October of '92. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And then it came out in '93. Um, but if it came out in April, as I, I think it did, that's right when they were, uh, right when uh, Pearl Jam was recording verses, right, and. Then they go out and play a bunch of shows throughout the rest of the year. When would when, when would you have done that? When would you have played? Yeah, I don't know that we would have played. I mean, it was more like what happened, the things that happened to the record, which in the end, I think it's kind of it's sort of beautiful, but it would it was rough around Sean and Regan. And it wasn't 
would have changed my life too if it had just come out. If it had come out the way that we were planning for it to come out, we would have sold those numbers, I'm pretty sure. Because yeah. it would, I mean, like, it was pulled off of the air. So, like, it was, you know. Go on. Yeah, I mean, and I've had people, like, I have a good friend who is, like, who was at Epic at the time. He's, like, actually, like, a dear friend of mine from college who managed my college band. I'm not going to say his name because it's, like, whatever. If he hears this, he knows and I love him, and it's not a big deal. But he told me that this didn't happen, but I just think he was being a good sort of mm. faithful company guy. But what I was told is that, and what happened is that, is that like Carrock was told to stop playing it because they did stop playing it. And why would they stop playing it? It was sounded amazing. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, you know, like they were playing it without being asked to play it. You know what I mean? Like, right. Um, so, and if K-Rock had played it and screen wasn't even the single, and then you have buttercup in 20th century and we had cool videos and it actually got promoted. It would have been on all the others. I mean, those are what it could have should have, but mm -hmm. I, you never know, but I think that it would have, I don't think it's a, even really a stretch. Considering all that and considering how, how compressed, um, the Pearl Jam world was at the time where you couldn't really fit this in properly. Was it even looking back now, does it feel like, like a crazy wild surprise that you were able to even record any of this? Like that, that stone would even attempt to do this. Like why, why, why attempt to even do it? If you saw that your career in, in your other band is fucking huge. Oh, I mean, I think stone had like very personal and artistic reasons for doing it. It wasn't like about, and I, by the way, I don't, I don't think that the people who wanted the record not to get attention were doing it spitefully. And I don't think they were doing it because they were worried about Pearl Jam sales. I think it was more just like they were more concerned about like coming off as being too greedy or something. You know what I mean? Like hmm. exploitation. Like, yeah, exactly. Got like, it. like, yeah. Which it wouldn't have been, but I mean, whatever, it doesn't matter. I get the point of view. So Stone, obviously he would answer the question better, but I think I do have insight into this. I think there were a few things going on. One was um, he had a lot of personal like connection with Sean and Regan. Regan, you know, had, I think, been in an earlier version of Pearl Jam or like, an, and it didn't work out. And him and Regan go back to high school and Regan was in a band with, with Andy and, you know, um, and so they're dear friends. And I think he had a real allegiance to Regan mm. and I, and Sean's connection to Andy Wood. There's that piece. And then I think also just like he believed in their talent, you know what I mean? And wanted, I think he wanted to give voice to their talent. Like, and then I think there's one more piece, which is that, um, and I'm pretty sure Stone has said this. So is that like Pearl Jam in its inception was like Jeff and Stone's band, and Stone is really the principal songwriter, mm -hmm. right? Right. And it became in, in the course of that first record, I mean, not recording the first record, in the course of promoting the first record, it was then Eddie's band. 
And, and I don't think it was an ego thing. It was more like, well, now we're going to have to do like what my contributions to Pearl Jam are going to be what works with Eddie. Um, not, Hey, Eddie, get some stuff to work over even flow over this riff. I mean, I'm sure they still did some things like that, but it was just, right. you know, power dynamics change. The heartbreakers were not Tom Petty's band. It was Ben Montench's band. Well, it became Tom Petty's band, you know, mm-hmm. like, you, know you know, and I don't think Stone has regretted for a second that it became, you know, it's still their band, but you know, you have a leader. Like, I don't think he was, he, they're still together. Right. You know, like, right, yeah. you know I don't think Thanks, that's Liz. the issue. I think it was more like, Hey, I'll, it's just be cool to have an outlet. Can I do it again? Can I love these guys? You know, like it, it was all happened that it was really good. And you, it's hard to, to make both things be big in the same space. Maybe. Is that what you yeah, mean? Yeah. I mean, I, Yes. And Stone, it, this, it wasn't Stone who did it. I think the people who were resistant to it were more just like resistant to all kinds of things. We're young, they were young dudes. We're all young, right? And they became the biggest man in the world. And then you like trying to deal with it, right? It's different. I'm, I don't have to be Eddie Vedder. Like, I, you know, like at that period of time, you know what I mean? I've never, I get recognized now occasionally, which is really funny. Like I'm at, a, this is the kit show and somebody recognizes me from Renee and Jeremy. It's hilarious. <laughs> but at, nobody was recognizing my ass in 1992, you know, like, you know, in Silver Lake. Well, you know? I mean, 1993, you know, shame's about to come out. Your solo career is starting to find its sea lakes though. You know, so did, did this experience with Brad kind of help kickstart that, you know, like were, were you always planning to make a run at your own EP, your own record? Um, I think that Brad opened a door to me creatively to think, oh, maybe my songwriting could work actually in the world as opposed to just in my tenement palace in Silver Lake where I'm playing <laughs> to myself, you know, and playing at the coffee shop, you know, on Hillhurst, you know, to like three people who are like, wow, those are some obscure songs. Um, so I think it did in that sense, like because the Brad record ended up being kind of this cult record because of the things we just talked about, it did not lead automatically to me getting a deal. Like I had to, it led to me having some connections, but I kind of had to like go from scratch to a certain extent um, playing and like making, you know, making the demo that became my first EP, which was, um, with word behind words, which was like my favorite thing that I did in that solo period. So like with my friend, Brad, Bradley Kaplan, who produced it, like, which he, you know, developed. So it was, it was, I had to do all of that stuff and then go shop it. And I'm sure some people like Bruce Flores signed me at RCA was like the Brad piece. He was a Brad fan. So mm. it made, it ended up making that kind of a difference, but. Um, the difference between us having maybe sold a lot more records and not is the difference of like, you know, how much work that took or, or quite frankly, you know, what might've happened with Satchel, you know what I mean? Right. So at this point you've got the EP out and you've just put out the first record, perfect flux thing on RCA. Yes. I want to know. So at, at this point, things are starting to kind of like, however you want to say Brad influenced this period for you, yeah. he did in some way. Yeah, for sure. How are yeah. you feeling now, 
Now you, you've, I, I imagine you've built up some confidence, but how are you feeling about your musical journey at this point? You know, to be honest, it was like, it was really, all of it was kind of hard for me. Like, um, and a lot of it was self-induced, but like, I don't think that I really got to properly, you know, smell the roses or whatever, like at the time, because it was just things like I've got to put those things out, which is in itself amazing, right? That you get to make a record and put it out. Like now I can just be psyched about that. Right. But at the time I was more like, wow, nobody's buying it. Or I'm on the second stage of Lollapalooza to promote perfect flex thing. And literally watching the entire audience run away as soon as corn starts going thump, 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 thump over the, on the other side of the amphitheater. Adidas, and like, Jeremy, Adidas. I know, man. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My, my, <laughs> my band was enjoying corn. They were like, Oh, doing corn invitations. I'm like, dude, those are the guys that are making me have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> um, so yeah. So that's where I was at. It was really, it was very, it even though I was getting this shot, which was really a good and amazing opportunity, the fact that it wasn't really breaking, everything was a little bit of a struggle. And like I had a parallel thing happen where word behind words was getting played by K-Rock from my EP. And then RCA was like, oh, we're not going to promote this. We don't need to do the guitar version. And we re-recorded it like at there were you know it's just like no that actually was the dope version anyway mm. it's all hindsight is 2020 and i didn't have you know some people come in with really come in to the music business like stone is one of these people that come in with a lot of musical ability and a good business sensibility and maturity and it's like those things combine and you get the talent together and amazing things can happen and then there's in between people, and then there's like me and Sean. <laughs> well, I, I mean, let's talk about hindsight for a second. You know, yeah. uh, you you chose to forego touring um, with Brad for Interiors. You said at the time, or maybe it was later, that it, it was a, a stupid mistake. I mean, we're 26 years removed from that, so and it's still a, a stupid bit, mistake. <laughs> why? I'm, why? Like, I mean, can you explain the the miss the, the lessons that you learned from that? Like, well, what? Why do you view it that way? Because it was purely emotional, and and you know, like my reason, the guys. I had a band together for that had just done Lollapalooza, I think, and it was like I wanted to keep my solo band together. And I didn't, and I was like, but I don't, you know, and they were like, well, we think it'd be cool if you open, but maybe just play a few songs acoustically, which is quite frankly, a completely reasonable offer as far as sitting here, Jeremy, this many years later. And, you know, but not but a reasonable time, offer at the time. Yeah. I think it's a completely reasonable offer. But at the time I was like, fuck them. You know, I want to keep my band together. They were lovely guys, but they were guys that I was paying, you know, <laughs> or RCA was paying. Right. Um, and so, and my A&R guy at the time who had made other mistakes, like he made the mistake on word behind words. That was, in, I love you, Bruce Floor, but that was a boneheaded call. He's broke Dave Matthews and whatever. He's doing fine. <laughs> um, but he did try to speak sense to me and he was like, listen, yeah, maybe it's dickish and maybe they should let you play beforehand with your band. But 
Let me tell you from the RCA perspective that if you were out there with Epic paying your tour support, or actually they don't have to pay tour support because you're going to sell out every show. And But anything that gets paid is on Epic's time, not RCA's. And after every show, you're there with your pile of Perfect Flexings records, signing them to people who are just going to be buying them. RCA is going to be doing cartwheels and have you do all this radio stuff and support and blah, blah, blah. And I just, I look at my young self and I just have to give him a hug. He was just, you know. <laughs> Let me ask. Did, That's did, a beautiful expression, Jeremy. <laughs> I, I can't wait to use it on myself. Did that negative energy? Did that? Did that like? Fuck you! I'm not going to do this. Did that come from the different vibe at the interior sessions? Because I know it was a very different recording. Um, uh, um, I guess environment. So like, yeah. Was there some negativity that came? It's that came out of that. And that kind of lingered through the Lollapalooza, through all that. And then when they asked, you were like, fuck it, no. I would definitely say, yeah. The interior sessions, the vibes were not as good. <laughs> in, in a couple, in, in like, what, what's, what's one word to describe those sessions to you? I just think strained, mm. you know, and understandably from all sides. I mean, I think Satchel had already put out EDC, but maybe not the family. I'm not sure. So, I think it was in part, let's get some momentum for like, I think Sean and Regan, they would know answer better than me, but I think that they were both feeling like we got to get some momentum behind our thing. And then we can do some satchel stuff too. Right. Um, and I similarly was coming in with my own thing where I had already made my first record for RCA. So it's like every, and probably the only person who was chill was Stone. Um, and so, like, it just ego stuff ar- arose. And I'm at the time, I'm sure I, I know I blame Sean and Regan, but I'm sure I contributed to it. Um, I like, you know, equally. <laughs> uh, and so that was there. But I also think it was just like, why is that stuff there? Like, it's not all that. It's like the fuck you i'm not going to go on the road stuff also has to do with stuff that i must have been carrying throughout my life Mm -hmm. that was just you know people have self-sabotaging behaviors and that was like a self-sabotaging behavior because like if there's any time to just go like yo dude swallow whatever your pride is that would have been a time would it have changed everything i have no idea and you know but it definitely was the wrong call you know and i don't and it's one of those things that's like, oh, I don't make those kinds of calls anymore because it's like, that's just stupid. Jeremy, you said that you you split from Brad by mutual agreement after the Discovery Park tour. Yeah. That was the, the first with the band, which was, uh, I think, December of 2002 through January of the next year, which was yeah. right around when Pearl Jam kicked off the Riot Act tour. Right. Uh, interestingly enough, also in Australia at the time. Uh, what yeah. was that vibe like? for that tour like how, how hard was it to make the decision to to bow out due to the the financial reasons or was it just to be pragmatic it was, that was like you know it was that was really all of that for me was really bad like like i mean going back and making the record felt like the right thing to do but like i don't need to get into the like i get why 
the guys were kind of annoyed. Like I needed to get paid to make the record because I just didn't have any money. And I don't think the guys were getting paid and stone obviously didn't need to get paid. So there were like things like that, mm. that were, I think bugging them. But from my perspective, I was like, but I can't even go to Seattle. Like I've got like a, you know, like kid and sh- you know what I mean? Like I can't even be there unless I can bring some money. on. so I'm like, why are you, why, why are you? Did they ask you to come up? Cause I, it must be weird to split duties with Mike Berg who replaced you on the road. Um, they did ask me to come up. Right. And Mike was there mostly not to play bass, but he did play bass on some things. Cause there's some things that were like, not my, like, I think revolution or whatever might've been him. Like it was just not my wheelhouse. Like I'm not like a pick bass player. And it was kind of like, that was the vibe. Um, so making the record itself wasn't very fun. I don't really like that record, to be honest. I just don't like, um, I think there's some okay things, but like, I'm really about the first two records. I'm really about mostly about, I mean, I think there's great things that I love. Like I love day brings and I do like my, like some other songs. I like circle and line on interiors, but like shame is really to me the, the, the magic one. Um, and there's always the magic with Sean Smith, but, but so I didn't really love the record even at the time. And then the tour was just, it was not fun. It was in one sense, there were, there was a cool thing about it because I'd never gone on the road and it's like, you got to connect with the fans and there were those beautiful things. And sometimes it was beautiful to play buttercup. Like there were some things that were good. There were probably more things than I could even appreciate. I was really, my marriage was not doing well. And Sean and I were not, it was toxic and not fun. And um, so, and like, we were like the Iraq war was about to happen. <laughs> like, I remember like literally getting off the phone with my now ex-wife that we made a run of it after that like in tears in Philadelphia at the theater of living arts. And like Sean walks in and he looked at me and it's like, we were so not getting along, but he wanted to say something empathetic. And he's like, I don't know, put it into your art. And then he walks out. It was just like, I was like, I'm crying, dude. Thanks a lot, guy. <laughs> anyway. Well, let me, it, let me, then let's, let's push ahead then, because I mean, obviously, as everyone knows, we we lost Sean um, just a few yeah. years ago. So, like, when when did you? It sounds like obviously you guys were not in a good place then. Uh, I, I know you know according to you know outlets that you guys um, that you and the the band split amicably. But like, how were your relationships with all the guys? And and when did you f- reconcile with Sean? And how much time did you have before Sean left us? So. Right. I mean, it was amicable in the sense that like, we all agreed that I shouldn't be in the band. Like I was <laughs> yeah. like, okay. Yes. We I also mean, don't like, like you being in this band. Great. Come on. leave. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was like, no, they, I mean like, no, they did not kick me out. So like, which was sweet of them not to, especially cause like <laughs> the vibes weren't good. Yeah. Um, but it was more like they wanted to do some more stuff and I'm like, I can't afford to do it. And that was really it. So that's all true. And, but it was one of those things where it's just like the relationship, like it was a formative relationship and it's like, it haunted me for years. I can't speak to them. Like I just, 
never felt good about it. Um, and I actually ended up doing like, it's what got me into this um, practice, ho, ho, Ho'oponopono, which is this Hawaiian forgiveness practice. Um, and I'll be very brief, but I literally like this, my rabbi who I was working with recommended that I do it around the band. Cause I was just like, why am I even tripping about these guys? I haven't been in the band for years. Like they're fine. I'm goodish. Like, <laughs> and I did it and I did this practice, which is all about asking the people who you think have fucked you over to forgive you. That's the basics of the practice. So it's like a weird thing, but like three months into it, I got a call from stone and he was like, Hey, we're playing the Roxy. Do you want to come up on stage to play buttercup? And it was eerie because I was like, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And I go to the show on the way walking up to the see the to the Roxy, I just have this overwhelming feeling all of a sudden, like all that work on that prayer. I'm like, oh my God, I really love these guys. They're my brothers. Yeah. And and it was a complete reversal of where I'd been. And I just it kind of tripped me out. And I went and then Stone called me on stage and like the crowd went wild. And I see Sean and he gives me a big hug. And before I can say anything, he whispers in my ear, I don't hate you anymore. <laughs> and I was like, and I was like, I love you. You know, I love you, Sean. And um, so that's that. It's a very personal story, but I feel like sharing it just because it's like things can, it's, things can be transformed and that's a relationship. Like we never, it's not like we went and made another Brad record, but Sean and I would like, you know, he knew it. I'm not really into politics in that way anymore. I'm much more on a metaphysical tip, like, but he knew I was into politics and he would text me like, what do you think about this? I'd be like, well, I don't know, but I think this, and like, we would, you know, talk on Facebook or whatever. And, you know, he's like, not the most communicative dude, but like, I would hear from him and we would talk and so, I mean, I was really obviously, you know, heartbroken when, when he passed, but we had definitely so sealed our thing as friends. You know, I was always rooting for him um, at that point, for sure. Um, and I just saw Regan and Stone at the Loose Groove party, right? Yeah. And Jason yeah. was there. I yeah. was there. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, uh, Jason there with you guys, Stone, Regan's Loose Groove Records Party, Beverly Hills, watching this this next generation of yeah. uh, of rock and roll, right? So was that the first time that you hung out with the bandmates in years? Yeah. I mean, I had Regan and I have taught, like it's like I've seen Stone it, at least a couple times, right? Um, and I don't think I'd seen Regan in a long, long time. And I definitely, I hadn't been in a room with the two of them probably since that tour. Wow. Okay. So it's like, we were all like, it's like, I've talked to Regan a bunch. Like, it's not like we were like, right. Estranged, but we just had not been in the same room together. And I was kind of like, at some point I talked to Billy Jean, Lou Scoop. I was like, you gotta, we gotta take a picture of the original brats. Like it's been a minute. <laughs> you know, like, I feel like I remember actually turning around and seeing you all, you guys all kind of uh, like, you know, stand together. I'm like, this is very interesting. Cause I, yeah. I mean, I, I had a much looser understanding of, of your history. 
um, mm. before I kind of started diving in for this show. Right. But but to really hear that, yes, it, it had been maybe 20 years. Yeah, it had been a long time. Um, so it was really sweet. And I was, um, it was great to see those guys. And I love what they're doing. And, you know, there's some conversations with Loose Groove, maybe even about doing some um, stuff with me or Renee and Jeremy, and, um, which is a total trip. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you you mentioned Renee and Jeremy, and for those of you guys who who don't know, um, you and uh, your friend uh, Renee Stahl um, started collaborating what in two thousand six? Is that yeah. right? Yeah. And maybe you, maybe you can explain to me uh, or explain to the, our listeners better than I can explain what Renee and Jeremy is, because as far as I could tell, it was like lullabies meets like singer songwriter like art music that has like this vibey thing happening and like i like to chill and sink it in my bed when i listen to it like i love that what's what what do you make of renee and jeremy and talk about the the success of it that you maybe you didn't see coming yeah um so yeah i mean i think that's what you're everything you said is is pretty spot on it's i mean we made it's a big we made renee and jeremy Basically, we're like, wouldn't it be cool? Renee was pregnant. I don't need to tell the whole story of how we came to be, but the idea was... We know how she got pregnant. It's fine. Yeah, it wasn't me. <laughs> um, it was her husband. Uh, <laughs> dear friend. Sorry. <laughs> we like to say we make records together, not babies. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the idea was like, let's make some really chill children's music that we would dig. That's like influenced by people like Elliot Smith and Nick Drake only without the really dark lyrics. And that was the whole intention. And we made this record. It's a big world in like 2006 and it sort of, it met resistance, but also like embrace. It was really dark for children's music, but, but yet it was clear that people, some people already really loved it, but it really, over time, and we made a couple more records during that phase up until 2011, where we made a covers record called A Little Love. Um, it was just sort of growing, but but there was no streaming yet. And we were indie, and it's like, you know, it's like no budgets to promote stuff or get records in stores. It was just kind of like we sold some thousands of records, you know. Um, and then just something crazy happened, which is just... Uh, streaming happened and we had enough grant enough i guess foundation and enough people who liked what we were doing and the algorithms were kind to us and some programmers were kind to us and it just became you fed them, jeremy you fed them we fed them <laughs> we fed the alg- we fed fed the that's our that's our big thing here is feeding the algorithms with reviews so that we pop up in front of people's faces and the algorithms were were kind to you yeah. They were kind to me, but I fed them by retiring from music. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Paul, we have to quit, and then the people are going to love us. <laughs> That's why most of our episodes are evergreen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, so that's, you know, and now the music we make is like more, we still sort of like keep our sort of core audience in mind, but we came back in 2021 because in part, like we were getting all these crazy streams and Renee would keep asking me to make records. I was trying just to earn money and feed my family and keep my family together. <laughs> and like, I would always say no, but the band's not broken up. And then it was just kind of the pandemic happened mm-hmm. and it was just like, 
Okay. So we have at the time, like, we have like more streams now, but over like 200 million streams. And I was like, I can't really say no. What am I doing? I'm yeah. literally the same mistake at home. that 1997 Jeremy made. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't <laughs> mad about it. I was just like, well, I can't really say that I'm busy right now. I'm not. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the Jeremy Tobek speed reading clinic had not yet taken off. So, <laughs> Oh man, I wish I'd implemented that. Right. <laughs> like I can't even speed read after all that. You know. <laughs> He's a phony. He can't even do it himself. Uh, yeah, I was half to. Yeah, yeah. What, 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 what's next? Huh? I mean, you got the release of Shout, and makes us feel like you you found a groove. Suits yeah, you, and you've opened up a whole new space of creativity. So, what, what uh, what's on the horizon, Jeremy? So yeah, so Renee and Jeremy's made these two records, and we I just met with her today. So we're like, we're gonna take a little breath and just sort of let them grow and like there are and we definitely know that we there's another we started doing some more originals on the last record and it's like i said it's sort of moved in or it moves moved in a more straight indie folk or like a a chill indie folk act that has a bunch of lullaby fans (laughs) and um and we were conscious to make records that like the people who are streaming all the lullabies like can also put on and be mm. happy with. So like our cover of sweet child of mine on a uh, whole lot of love, which is the record before shout is doing really well. And it's sounds like a lullaby, but it's also just a cool ass cover of sweet child of mine. I think is people that, seem to is like that, it. Um, is that Rome B-52's Rome? Yeah. Yeah. I love song. that song. Yeah. Um, so we're going to make another one and it'll be more originals heavy. Um, we'll still do some covers and it's just a question when we're going to do that. And we are talking to people and like, we have been talking to loose groove about potentially doing that. We've done everything independently, but, um, which is great. And like I said, we've been feeding the algorithms. Like you, (laughs) you found our, you found our dirty little secret. Um, but it would be nice to have a partner who can like, you know, access people and let them know about it other than just the robots, the robots who are helping us. And so Loose Groove could be an interesting partner. And I love those guys. And it's like, I'm flattered that, um, so that's, there's been some talk there and we'll see. I mean, I've also been talking to Regan. This will be a little segue. Um, I got put out a couple solo singles in the last year and I'm working with, I don't know if you know this band Everest. It was kind of in the two thousands. Um, sounds vaguely familiar. They're on Warner brothers for a second and vapor, which is like Neil Young's management's mm-hmm. label. Anyway, cool band. This guy, Joel Graves who's in that band owns new monkey studio, which is Elliot Smith's old studio. Um, and so I'm working with him. And this guy, Greg Cortez, Killa Cortez is his artist name, and they're amazing. And Elliot's all of Elliot's old gear, all this old analog stuff. And um, we did a couple songs, and I love them. And also just sort of ran into the, wow, it's crowded out there. And even though these are some of my favorite things that I've ever done, I'm gonna, I really do want to partner for the full a full mm. record so I'm, we're gonna finish a full record 
And I'm sure we'll talk to uh, Stone and Regan and, if, you know, maybe some other folk and just see who wants to. Um, I mean, we could put it out ourselves. You can always do that. But like, listen, yeah. if you need anybody to play a triangle, I'm available. You are you a dope triangle player? I fucking <laughs> crushed the triangle. <laughs> oh, yes. This, that's awesome. Hey, hey, and, and, us, if you need an egg shaker. <laughs> He's wow, got the prop handy. Holy shit. You guys play my two least favorite instruments. That's awesome. Oh, <laughs> shit, I should have said oboe. Damn it. <laughs> we did. Uh, Joel is Joel Graves is a big um, Brad fan and Regan fan. And so we've already talked to Regan about doing the Regan shuffle on at least, which is what his Joel's name is for Regan sort of trademark ballad groove that he plays mm-hmm. on buttercup and some other jams mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so uh the, we're gonna bring the regan shuffle on at least one song so i love it if not more yeah i love it so there's, there's gonna be a little i don't know if we can convince uh, uh maybe we'll find some place for stone too he, if we'll, do it. We'll see. maybe we'll find some place for stone yeah i'm sorry <laughs> oh my god yeah, I don't um, mean it that way, you know. <laughs> Jeremy, this has been a lot of fun, man. Uh, and I think when uh, things get uh, more solidified on this uh, next venture, we should have you come back and talk about that. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, that would be super awesome. Well, um, this, this I don't know how long it's been, but it feels like it's just flown by. And I, I really appreciate um, the time and the insight on, on this band, Brad, and... It's uh, you've been very uh, naked and honest with with how it af- has affected you, and, the, and the, the music business is no joke. And it isn't. It's it's not always fucking roses. And um, I'm appreciative that you've allowed us to kind of know all of the uh, the deta- well, at least some of the details of the of that journey of yours. Well, I hope. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate that, and I hope that it's like, you know, I mean it. Like, I want to share it in a way that it's helpful to people. You know, it's not out of bad blood and stuff. It's just like, everybody's doing their best. <laughs> Sometimes people get hurt. <laughs> you know? No, man. Like, we, we, we talked to Dave A, you know, t- chatting with you as well. I mean, it, it's just clear that these were, th- 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 these were difficult waters to navigate. Right. Man, you know, right. And, and I think you guys all really did the best job you knew how to do at that time. And uh, we're all very fortunate to to have this music to. Uh, oh, that's beautiful. You know, so yeah. Thank you. There he is, Jeremy Toback. Thank you for coming on the show, buddy. Thanks for having me. It was really actually great chatting with you guys. Oh man, it's awesome to hear those stories and kind of get just a little bit, a little bit of a different perspective um, about about Brad and 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 what Jeremy went through post Brad. Absolutely. I mean, it's great, Jason. We're able to, we, we talk about peeling back the ears, the, the layers, pardon me, of a, of an onion. Uh, this to me is really about adding layers. You know what I mean? Mm. It's, it's enjoyable chatting with these folks and just continuing to add layers that, that provide us with context and nuance and just kind of help us paint a more human picture of uh, these, these remarkable events that produced this, uh, this memorable outstanding music that continues to to bring us all together so very very grateful tis the season right very mm-hmm. grateful for for jeremy toback coming on the show and uh continue to be appreciative of all of our guests and, and looking forward to many more 
and and uh, we we do the uh, the lyric of the week thing uh, quite often, and it it has shown us um, songs in new lights. It has made us revisit them and relook the, look at them at a at a new in a new way with with a new renewed appreciation. And I think that Jeremy has allowed me to do that with um, some of this Brad stuff that maybe I haven't listened to in a long time. Yeah, and now sure. that I've got the context of how and why things happened and and how things changed and you kind of get a, a, a more 360 view of, um, of the material and it, it makes it hit harder. It sure does. Absolutely. And, uh, very grateful. Thank you, Jeremy. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Jeremy. And, uh, guys, we will be back next week. We've got, um, our, our grateful show, our thankful show as we uh, tend to do before Thanksgiving here in America. And, uh, like I said, we've got more interviews coming up throughout the end of this calendar year murderers row i said at the top of the show murderers row what else do they have in store oh my god who knows you should just stick around and find out keep listening each week each tuesday when it drops and uh, we'll be back next week and until we do you have been listening to the state of love and trust we are, we are.